said, you know, school's going to open a library. And I was like, oh, that's great. Have you, what system are you going to use? And are you going to, how are you going to do this? And what, are you going to organize it? And are you going to have a fixed schedule or a, you know, a flexible schedule? And she just gave me this blank look. <laughs> <laughs> she, she was like, I've got books in a room. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, that's never going to work. Like, here's what you got to do. That was MSLA President-elect Jen Varney. And I'm Luke, the co-host of the MSLA podcast and librarian for the Natick Public Schools. Welcome. Ella, co-host and Amherst Public Schools librarian, sat down with Jen. Their conversation explores Jen's start in cataloging and academic librarianship, and then moves on to schools that Jen has worked at in Cambridge and Boston, and her eventual involvement in MSLA. Jen is looking forward to a post-quarantine organization and career. Listen in for some insights into what changes, challenges, and opportunities she hopes to foster. One of those challenges is social media, especially Instagram, where Jen, as a member of Gen X, is completely mystified by. So thanks for listening to our first episode, and I hope you enjoy the interview. Maybe we'll just start with some questions about the MSLA board and like how you got interested in being president and what you're like looking forward to do and that kind of thing. Um, in terms of, you know, why I wanted to be president, it's kind of, it, you know, it's kind of funny. It was really just one of those right person at the right time kind of things, because typically people, you know, historically MSLA presidents have been really active in conference planning and really active in event planning and maybe advocacy. And I, was a little bit active in advocacy and I would never was on the conference committee before this year actually. But the thing that kind of uh, just kind of fell in my lap because I was the treasurer uh, for five years and I was the treasurer when our former executive director, Kathy Lowe retired. And I kind of had more of, of the insight about how the office works and the, the back part of MSLA and how we keep it all running behind the scenes more so than anyone else. So I sort of had that knowledge um, at a time when that was going to be important to keep MSLA running. So it was really just kind of a, um, this is what we need for this moment in time kind of thing. So, um, but I'm glad that I did it that way because I think I do have a pretty good knowledge of how MSLA kind of operates when, you know, when no one's looking. Um, but it also is, uh, you know, conference planning was really interesting because I had never done it before. <laughs> I had never done it before either. And I feel like it's such a great way to get involved in MSLA is just to like pick the thing you're interested in and to just kind of be like, I'm interested in the conference. I like going to that. I guess I'll volunteer for that committee or, you know, I'm interested in advocacy. I like talking to my state reps or whatever, like I'll get involved in that. Like I, I think one of the nice things about MSLA is that you can do so many different kinds of outreach. Um, or kinds of work rather. Yeah, I think that's true. And I think there is some, you know, kind of like a little bit of something for everyone if you're not. Um, and even, you know, even in the conference committee, if you're really great at generate, generating fun ideas and, you know, planning events, that's one thing. But if we're also really good at logistics and 
dotting all your I's and crossing all the T's and taking care of all the details, like that's really important too. And there's a role for you. <laughs> yeah, it sort of take, takes all kinds. Yeah, um, exactly. I'm really intrigued that you started as an academic librarian and became an elementary school librarian, right? Like you're in a K through eight school. So yeah. K through eight or K through six? Um, I'm currently at a K to five, but K -5. before before this, I was at a K to eight. Tell me more about like what that, what inspired you to make that transition? Like what were some of like the highlights, lowlights, like challenges, surprising things you were like, oh, this was really relevant from working with high school or college students and now working with <laughs> kindergartners? <laughs> you know, honestly, so I was a cataloger. Um, when I started, that was my first professional job. Um, and I still really like cataloging and I wish I had more time to do it, but I don't, you know, as you know, being a school librarian doesn't leave you a lot of time for cataloging. And I'm so lucky right now. I work in Cambridge and we have a cataloger for the district, which I think is so it jealous. And it's so amazing. I don't know how, you know, in Boston, we did not have that. And I, I, somehow made it work, but I'm not sure how. I did a lot of cataloging over the summer, I think. Um, but so what happened actually was, um, I, you know, in, in academic libraries, I wasn't 100% sure of my career path or where I wanted to go with it at about the time that, okay, so like a little nepotism secret here, a friend of mine who was a principal of the school said, you know what, school's gonna open a library. And I was like, oh, that's great. Have you, what system are you going to use? And are you going to, how are you going to do this? And what, are you going to organize it? And are you going to have a fixed schedule or a, you know, a flexible schedule? And she just gave me this blank look. <laughs> she, she was like, I've got books in a room. Like, what are you talking about? And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, that's never going to work. Like, here's what you got to do. So she actually recruited me to volunteer. I took a couple of days off from my academic job and I volunteered setting up the school library and getting uh, Winnebago. We had Winnebago was the first system. Oh God. Old school. <laughs> I know. And, um, and then she said, you know, I'm gonna, you know, have funding for a full-time librarian next year if you get certified. Um, and I hemmed and I hawed because I did not want to be a school librarian, um, you know, the whole time. I don't know if you, if you went to Simmons, but the whole time you're at Simmons, they tell you, you might want to do the school library program because a lot of people come back and say, oh, I didn't do it, but now I want to be a school librarian. And I was like, no, I am <laughs> never going to want to do that. Uh, but I went and I got the preliminary certification that you can get if you have yeah. an MLS. Um, but you know, then you have to follow up within five years and do all the things that I didn't do the first time. And so that was how it started. And the other really cool thing was that that was a dual language school, Spanish, English. Oh, that's awesome. And so it just, you know, opening a library in two languages at any level, you know, was just an opportunity I really couldn't pass up at the time. And so that was my foray into school libraries. And I thought I'll just do it for, you know, four or five years and then I'll come back to academic. And, yeah. You know, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's such an interesting, um, like I, I worked in an academic library also while I was in graduate school, I was in library school. I worked for actually a specialist, specialist library at the Boston Architectural College. Um, mm -hmm. And it is sort of funny, like how much of what I like did there and learned there is like applicable to working with students. And I work with high school students, so it's a little bit closer in age. 
but even so it's there is like quite a bit that transfers um and especially I feel like I mean the one thing I feel like I just do not have any confidence in my own skills around is cataloging so I feel like that is such an incredible skill especially if you're opening a library I would think there would be just like what a handy thing to have in your back pocket (laughs) and I think that was you know at first like that part I had for sure but then like you know, teaching second graders. I had no idea what I was doing. Yeah, that's a big jump. (laughs) 22 to, you know. Yeah, you know, and and like medical students too. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But it was, you know, I learned and it was, you know, I'm I'm really glad I did it. Um, Obviously this was, it was the right choice for me, but um, Definitely an unusual kind of career path, I think. But then a lot of people are like, oh yeah, this is second career. You know, I was a journalist. I was a this, I was a that. Like a lot of people come to it later. I think so too. And I think also being, especially a school librarian, but really any kind of librarian is like requires a sort of level of curiosity about the world and about people. That means that like many people have been curious about other things also. And so have done other things as well as being school librarians. So I, I do think a lot of people had other other career paths along the way. Definitely. Um, yeah, and I, I think also the, you know, I'm, I'm always sort of curious when someone has made that kind of transition either from one kind of librarian to another or from another field to being a librarian, like what, advice would you give somebody who was doing that now somebody who's listening to this podcast who's like an academic librarian but is thinking about dipping their toes into school librarianship or as a public librarian or you know coming from another kind of library world a great question um i mean the number one thing i would say is make sure you like kids (laughs) (laughs) yes that is definitely it sounds really basic and yet um that's if you like the kids, then everything else I think will kind of fall into place. Yeah. You know, you can, you'll figure it out. You'll make it work. For me, classroom management was a big hurdle that I had to overcome because it is definitely, there's an art to it. But once you can relax and be yourself around the kids, usually it will, it'll all kind of fall into place for you. So that's, that's my number one thing. Relax, enjoy the kids, get ready to be completely exhausted every day by 3 p.m. <laughs> I almost took a nap during lunch today, so I revealed that pretty hard. <laughs> you know, it's definitely you're on in schools in a way that you're not on in other types of librarianship. Not that schools are harder necessarily, but they are different and the the energy flow is a little bit different in a way that you can't really describe or articulate until you've experienced it. Yeah, I agree. I think that's, you know, I, I had, my mom was a teacher, she was an art teacher at elementary schools and you know, I liked school growing up. So I, you know, I, I sort of thought I had an idea of what it would be like to be a teacher, but I did not have that, that like, I think the energy is, it's a good way to describe it. Cause it really is about this like constant hum of energy. And especially I think in a library, like maybe that's not as true if you're a classroom teacher and you have a prep period and you close the door and no one's in your room for an hour. Um, but as a librarian, like there's no break time unless I literally go outside for lunch that no one can find me because otherwise I will be, I will be interrupted my whole lunch break which is you know oftentimes it's students just being like hey we wanted to come have lunch with you and it's so nice to see them and catch up with them and 
you know, chat about what's going on in their lives. But sometimes I'm like, I just want to like not talk to anybody or not see anybody for 30 minutes. So I can just like sit in silence. And I, I don't, I've never had a job like that where it's been like, you cannot take a break unless you take a break. And I, I love it. I think it's really energizes me. It doesn't deplete me overall, but it is, it is definitely something I was not prepared for. I thought I knew and I did not know. Yeah. It's yeah. And and I think until you've experienced it, you don't know. Um, there's a definite, you know, I, you know, when I was an academic library and I would, you know, I would do a task and then I would, you know, flip over to, you know, the Boston Globe for a minute and just take a little brain break and read an article. And then I would come back and do another task. And you can't do that. And it's like, there's literally no two minutes in between tasks to just like step back and give yourself a moment. Like it just doesn't exist. Getting back a little bit to the MSLA and sort of what's going on with the MSLA right now, just remind us a little bit about like the timeline of things. So I know you are like the incoming president, but you don't actually switch over until July. Is that sort of the timeline I'm remembering? That is correct. Laura Luker is the current president. Her term ends June 30th, and mine begins on June, uh, July 1st. The board turns over every two years, but then the presidency gets elected on the off year so that it's hard to describe, but um, so that I've been president elect for a year. So I've been shadowing Laura and she will stay on as past president next year to kind of help advise me. And then she'll be done and the new president elect will start while I still have a year left. So there's some continuity there in terms of, you know, leadership and mentorship and stuff. That's a great system, actually. I don't think I realized that there, I knew there was the president elect sort of role and I didn't realize there was also like a past president like that Laura stays on for some advisory capacity for another year thank goodness he's moving yeah I mean Laura's amazing so that's uh, you're you're in good hands with her we're also electing a new board this year then so if you were elected last year that means this year's a new board so I know there are some board openings and I know there's been some or maybe there's just one now I'm not sure if you filled everything else but can you tell us a little bit about the upcoming election yeah, there should, I'm hoping to get the election going um, next week. There was a slate of nominees for area directors was approved uh, last Wednesday by the board. Um, there's a couple, one position that I'm still kind of someone's, you know, I may be working on them a little bit to see if they want to do it. Um, and then we have a lot of positions on the board that are not elected. They are technically appointed. Um, and those would be the committee chairs. So advocacy, professional learning, which is conference and other, you know, PD, um, the forum editors and the awards committee are appointed positions. Um, and they all serve on the board uh, as well. Uh, the chairs of those committees, obviously you can be on the conference committee and not be the chair and not have to go to board meetings. Um, but the chairs also serve on the board and the board is the decision making body. So we come together once a month and hash things out um, and read reports and talk about things and make decisions that then the committee chairs and the MSL leadership go and go forth and make happen. <laughs> Time is weird this year, but it was only was yesterday. <laughs> yesterday I did my first meeting that the nominating committee we met because we 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 talked about ways to really recruit a lot of different people um we want to make sure everyone who's interested in mla knows how msla knows how to get involved 
knows that there's a place for them in the organization. So we really want to reach out to as many people as we can and talk about what's going on and um, see what kind of things they want MSLA to be doing. Um, so, so I had my first meeting yesterday. With, <laughs> the nominating committee sort of started referring to this, me going out and meeting with a bunch of people as my listening tour, which <laughs> cracks me up, but I kind of like it. So I had my first listening tour meeting yesterday morning with the librarians um, in Boston Public Schools. So that was, you know, my home as a school librarian. So that was really fun to catch up with everyone and just talk about the organization, get to tell them a little bit about what it is and why it exists and what we're doing, and then solicit some feedback. What do you want from MSLA? What do you need us to be working on? Um, you know, because right now we're maybe, hopefully, knock on wood, emerging from a pandemic and we have, it's kind of a blank slate right now. Education will be different. Librarianship will be different. You know, in a way, I think this is really the time for MSLA to, you know, if we're going to make changes in our priorities or in ways that we want to move forward, this is the time. It's now. So, I, I want to hear from as many people as possible about what they want from their organization. We also have a completely volunteer leadership. So <laughs> yeah, that's, it's sort of in some ways, I mean, it's, it's obviously very different from a union in many ways. I do sometimes think about it as being a little bit like a union where like if you're in the teacher's union, you know, the teachers are the union, the union is the teachers. And same thing with MSLA, like the librarians are the MSLA, the MSLA are the librarians in our yeah. schools. So they're very is, closely related. Yeah, it is similar. And it's, you know, we do what our membership wants us to be doing and, and we can't do it without them because yeah. we don't, you know, even, even less than the union, we have no, you know, paid leadership, yeah. uh, we're just, a, just a volunteer organization yeah. um, here. Um, that said, um, I should talk about the study. Um, I know. <laughs> Everyone just calls it the study and it actually has a title and I just everyone calls it the study. I don't even know what the title is, but it was the study that was published in 2018 that was um, requested by the state legislature to study the state of school libraries in Massachusetts and kind of where we are. Um, and when that study was published, it came with a lot of recommendations. One of those recommendations was for DESE to undertake a survey of school libraries in the state of Massachusetts because we don't even have great data about which schools have libraries and librarians or paras or staff at all. So that's, um, that's our biggest advocacy priority right now is contacting legislators to contact DESE to ask for this study. Um, so that's obviously not the only thing we're doing, but that is one of the biggest priorities right now is really pushing for that. That seems like such an important thing just to have that data. And also I would imagine, you know, it's one thing I think about a lot with school libraries, like in thinking about your listening tour is that, you know, some, some of our schools that don't have school libraries may have a lot of need for the MSLA to advocate on their behalf, but what they specifically need and want, we have no way of knowing because they don't have librarians. And so having that data to sort of talk about what we see as trends in schools that don't have libraries or have under-resourced or understaffed libraries, um, I think would be really helpful and just as an organization to, to help us decide like how do we want to best advocate for those those libraries to get in those schools and those students to get what they need and deserve um, in public education. Absolutely, because yeah. school libraries really are an equity issue. 
Yeah. You know, there's plenty. The data is indisputable that having a school library helps your students achieve. Um, and it's by and large, not 100%, but by and large, rural and urban libraries that are lacking school libraries and who are missing out on that opportunity and who are not taking advantage of resources that the state pays for them to use, but they're not using them because they don't have the staff to facilitate the use. And so they're not, they're not getting what they deserve. Deserve is a really, is, is a really great word. And we need to um, make people aware of that. Yeah, there's an article. I actually haven't read all of it. I will freely admit to, um, you know, speaking about it without having read the whole article, but I did skim it briefly and it seems like a good article. It's from Publishers Weekly. It just came out a week ago. Um, called School Libraries Are the Bedrock of Freedom, and it's by Joanne and Kenneth C. Davis. And I don't know Joanne's work, but Kenneth C. Davis is a um, historian and, and children's book author that's a really wonderful, um, I would recommend reading his books. But um, yeah, it just, it, I was, I read it and I was immediately like, oh, of course they are. Like, of course that makes perfect sense. This is something all students deserve to have school libraries that they can really understand their rights, have access to, to books about themselves and about other people and about the world. And I think that's a great, mission for advocacy mission for us to have. Um, you did mention something a little bit ago that I wanted to sort of circle back to, which is that, you know, because of the pandemic, librarianship is going to change. Schools are changing. Everything is changing. And I'm sort of curious, just like, what do you sort of see as being some of the big ways in which li school libraries might change moving forward? Maybe just your own school library, if you don't, you're not prepared to theorize about other schools, but what do you see changing just in school libraries? Yeah, and I don't know if I'm prepared to theorize about other schools. Um, <laughs> Understandable. And this, you know, I'm a K-5 to librarian, and so my perspective on a day-to-day -day kind of nitty-gritty basis is very elementary oriented, but, you know, I used to spend a fair amount of time, and I have a fixed schedule, so I see, you know, it's the, the teachers drop off their classes once a week, and then they go do their preps, and so collaboration has been tricky. And I also used to spend a really fair amount of time in my library classes doing basic teaching of technology. And those are the two things that I think are going to be the most impacted. One is I'm not going to have to do that basic teaching of technology because my kids have those skills now because they've used technology almost exclusively to do schools. So they have, they can use a Chromebook, they can navigate um, some of the basic things we've set up for them. They're very good at Google Suite. They're very good at Google Classroom. That's units of study that I used to teach that will not be necessary anymore. That opens up huge opportunity for me to really think about, well, what do I want to do instead? What is more important? Do I want to spend more time on research, more time on uh, library skills? Do I want to spend more time on social justice issues? Do I want to spend more time on literature appreciation? You know, I, and I don't know what the answer to those questions is yet, but that's one thing that I think is going to be huge. And probably that goes for all of K to 12. I imagine everyone's tech skills and, and educators' tech skills are just way higher than they used to be. And then the other thing is the value of collaboration. The pandemic has shown us how valuable it is. I'm hoping we can leverage that to really advocate for how, you know, it's great that you have a library and it's great that you have a credentialed library teacher, but if your library teacher isn't co-planning those skills with ELA or with social studies or even math and science, you know, that's a piece that's missing too, because the students really benefit when it's all woven together. 
So those are the two big things that for me, I see coming down the pike. And I don't know if everyone would agree with me about that. There's probably other things that I haven't thought of. I'm not concerned personally about students' academic progress. You know, there's all this talk about learning loss. And I think academically, the kids are going to be fine and we're going to catch them up and they've survived a pandemic and they're strong and resilient and they're going to be okay. But I do think we do have a little bit of a looming mental health crisis coming. It's going to be a tough transition back for kids whose whole worlds has been turned upside down. And a lot of kids have experienced loss and upheaval. And so I think SEL is going to be hugely, hugely important. It was important before, but I think for the next couple of years, it's going to have to take center stage. Already I'm seeing this huge difference. Just the level of which teachers feel more confident with their technology. And, you know, every teacher, almost every teacher in our school now has like dual monitors and they're like talking to the kids at home while they're teaching the kids in the classroom. And, you know, it's really hard work and it's very exhausting to do as a teacher. But just the, there's no way a year ago that like 95% of the adults in our building would have known how to do almost any of that. And I think the other pieces that students, I'm just seeing with students coming back, seeing them in person, I'm, I'm really getting a sense of this like maturity and responsibility and real sense of like understanding that they have some self control over how they're spending their time during the day has been really good for our high school students. And I don't know if this is as true for younger kids, but the kids who are in school who I'm seeing, um, it's been really remarkable to see this sort of resilience in them. And at the same time, I also have a sense that all of them just seem like they're a little bit muted. Their volume is just turned down a little bit. And I feel that way about myself. I think that's how a lot of adults feel too. So it's not a total surprise. But I think that looming mental health crisis, um, I, I think is very accurate. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, you know, yeah, I, I don't have the answers. I don't know what the answers None are. None of us do. <laughs> but um, in my school, I've been advocating for more counselors. Yeah. <laughs> like, we're going to need this because, you know, with the little ones, they don't, when they're stressed out, they behave. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it shows in their behavior and it shows, and their behavior is the most extreme when they're not in their classroom. So it's when they come to library and music and gym and art that we're going to have, that's when they're going to fall apart because that's that one, that's the straw that breaks the camel's back, right? It's that yeah. one more transition that they just is too much for them. Yeah. Um, and that's always been the case. And it's going to just be the case to the nth degree, I think in the fall. So, um, you know, especially for the littles, I really, and not just for the littles, but we really are going to need a way to, to reach them. And I don't have that expertise, you know, I, yeah. Can, I yeah, can we all need to sort of think about that, that trauma informed teaching is like requires a lot of learning on the part of educators and not easy stuff to, to deal with. Right. I do want to sort of pivot slightly, um, to pivot. talking about, <laughs> we love a good pivot. Um, so I'd love to sort of talk a little bit about the conference because we originally had the idea for this podcast right on the heels of this conference because during the conference, uh, Luke and I were talking about how much we have just like loved hearing from our peers and watching these amazing conference sessions and just feeling really jazzed about the professional community here in Massachusetts and our school libraries. And um, so I'd love to know from you since you were on the conference committee, you were super involved. Um, Sort of what were some of the highlights? What were some of the challenges? What did we learn from doing it online? Just like, I, we would just love to hear a little bit about the conference in general. The conference was, um, it was a roller coaster planning, <laughs> I think, this year. Um, it was my 
really my first time being super involved in the conference. I mean, I've always helped out at the registration desk, you know, but that's not the same as being involved in planning. Um, and it started, I think, very typically, you know, we picked a theme and we explored it and we talked about what we wanted to hear and who, you know, great speakers might be. And we solicited sessions from the membership and all of that I think is pretty typical, but then there was this question of, so how do we get, now that we've brainstormed- How do we do it? <laughs> how do we do, how do, now that we've brainstormed all this fabulous content, now what, you know? And nobody has ever done this before in, in MSLA. So we were all kind of stumped, but luckily our two conference chairs who serve on the board, cause they're the, you know, we talked about that. Uh, <laughs> Alita and Alex, they both went to the Northeast Media Literacy Conference, which also pivoted to virtual and used a platform called Whova. Um, and they came back from that conference and said, you know, it was pretty cool. Like you can just log into this website and then your sessions are right there. And there's all these ways you can interact with other people and you can, there's polls and there's ways you can talk to them. And we really liked it. And we were like, all right, Whova, let's have a demo. <laughs> you know, um, really like this is how it all just organically happened. And then we had a demo with Whova and we thought it was cool and we got a quote and it was affordable. Um, and so we took the plunge and that was how we picked Whova. But then still you're working with a new platform that you've never worked with before you're envisioning well how is it going to work and will people understand and and whova sells tickets as opposed to registration so there was a little bit of a different um vocabulary but i think we got that figured out how much do we charge for a virtual conference nobody knows we you know like there were just a lot of things that i felt like we just made up as we went along and then for me personally, the low point, shall we say, <laughs> where, the, where the roller coaster dipped, when Whova interacts with Zoom really, really well, and MSLA didn't have a Zoom account, the pandemic, everyone kind of was like, Zoom is the way to go. And we were thinking about switching to Zoom anyway. And then I, you know, read all the, all the user guides and Whova, and I watched all the video tutorials, and really, it was obvious that we were going to have to go with Zoom. So then I had to set up Zoom accounts from scratch, and, and there are pages and pages and pages of settings for zoom accounts i don't know if you've ever done it but and yeah, it's not quite detailed <laughs> it's fairly straightforward but it, everything was new so you have to really sit down and pick your way through it and think your way through it and then how you integrate zoom with whova there's a couple different ways depending on how you want it to work and i had to set it that up when it came time to train other people on it that's really when things got tough. <laughs> Our first initial training sessions did not go well. <laughs> Paul, I missed the very first one. And when I came to the second one, there was a lot of like, okay, like we're, we're back at this. <laughs> I was like, what happened yesterday? <laughs> I'm really glad you missed that one, Ella, because it was, um, because you just don't know until you do something. Maybe you should have known better that a couple of things that just the way that you fine tune things as you go along, you know, the way Whova works is they give you seven consecutive days of testing where you can kind of set up a mimic conference where you can go in and test everything. Day one of those seven consecutive days was really rough. By day seven, we pretty much had it nailed down, but anyone that came to a training on day one probably left feeling really frustrated and scared. <laughs> Um, so that, that kind of week for me was probably the low point where I was like, we are never going to pull this off. <laughs> it's just 
never going to happen. It's going to be a complete failure. And this is terrible. Um, but it wasn't. It was so good. It was so good. Like, I still, I'm a little bit in awe of how well it actually went. I know a handful of people had some tech issues. There were a few things, but by and large, it happened and it, and it worked. And I just, yeah, I think about it and I'm like, wow, <laughs> that we did that. Yeah. And I think it actually, not only did it work, but I feel like some things were like better than in person. I mean, there was obviously, oh, I always would rather be like with people and like seeing their faces, but for me, there were things I really enjoyed about it that I think I, I think I would miss if we went back to fully in person with no digital uh, online element. Um, and I'm curious if you felt the same way and if, and if so, like what those things were. I do feel the same way. The number one thing for me is that I think doing virtual things opens up a whole new world of being nimble and flexible because it's much less of a time commitment, right? There's no commute. And, you know, it's one thing for the conference if you want to go spend the night in a hotel and see your friends you don't get to see very often and, you know, hang out in the hotel bar. Like, I get that. That's a weekend away. But, you know, a board meeting. Yeah. Why should we have to drive for two hours to sit in a two-hour board meeting and then drive home again two hours? When after we working an eight-hour day. <laughs> after working an eight-hour day, like, let's just go home and everybody hop on the computer. It's a much less onerous task, I think, when you look at it that way. But in terms of PD virtually, I mean, I think that's a huge one. It's just convenience mm -hmm. um, for people that it, it makes it a lot more manageable when you're not getting somewhere. Because um, yeah. in Massachusetts, no matter where you go, there's traffic. Getting places is hard. The fact that we could record most of the sessions and make them available afterwards means that when there's concurrent sessions, you don't really have to pick one. The others will be available to you later. Yeah, so yeah. it takes away that stress of, oh no, what if, what if I make the wrong choice? And what if I miss something really great in the next room? We had a fun committee because we, we, we worried a lot about, you know, we know we have great content in the sessions and we knew our keynote speakers were going to be great, but so much of the conference is that negligible in between time that you can't quantify and you can't plan for, and you can't that, you know, could we replicate it online? We didn't know, but we tried. We had a fun committee that did all kinds of fun activities that were scheduled, but also took advantage of the Whova software so that we could have discussion rooms and chat rooms and Q&A, asynchronous Q&A back and forth. I got a lot of great book recommendations from some of those, from some of those things. We had someone always monitoring that so that if anyone had any tech issues or any logistical questions, we could get back to them, you know, instantaneously just about. It still felt like I was getting really great PD and that I was connecting with people, even though I wasn't in the same room with them. It really, truly felt like there was some community there. All the things you mentioned, I co-signed. Um, but one of the things I really enjoyed was the chat function and something that we normally definitely don't get to do in person is like, if you're all sitting in a room together, watching a great presentation, like you don't know how the people around you feel about, about it or what their, their thoughts are, or if they're like, oh my God, we tried that in my school and it went really well too. You know, like you don't have any of that kind of instantaneous like side conversation that's that's related to what's happening on the uh, in the session and um, I really found a lot of value in that and I actually connected with a few people based on things they said in the chat I as I'm sort of thinking ahead to next year's conference and who knows whether or not we'll be able to be online or be in person or how we're going to format it big question 
but uh, I definitely am like sort of thinking like, how can we replicate some of that kind of experience? So I'm, I'm super psyched about sort of the future of the virtual meeting. If you're in Western Mass, you're really far away, but if you live in the Boston area, you might not have a car. Right. And if exactly. we're meeting, you know, near Worcester, you can't come to a board meeting unless yeah. you have a car and can drive there. So I just feel like virtual meetings open up doors that takes away one of the barriers to participation. If there was, you know, if that was a barrier for you, you wanted to get involved, but like the actual logistics of getting somewhere was a problem. Now we can work around that. Um, and so I know there's other barriers, but at least that one yeah. is not a barrier anymore. Well, it's, you know, it's sort of like that, always that question, right? Like of what are the barriers we can easily remove? What are the things we have to go back? Absolutely. And this one is so yeah. easy now, yeah. you know, like it's so easy. So it's a, it's a no brainer. Yeah. Um, but in terms of the conference, I can, I can tell you that we are hoping to have at least something in person next year because we miss that. We miss seeing people in person. I think people miss it. Yeah. Right now, especially people miss people and we want to get together. <laughs> but I can also tell you, MSLA is not destitute by any stretch of the imagination, but we survive on membership dues and the income from the conference. And we have not had an in-person conference in two years. And we had the virtual conference, but we didn't charge nearly as much. But our expenses were not as high, but we haven't had the conference income in a couple of years that we have had before. So we are not destitute, we are totally fine. However, we can't really afford to turn around and do like a big two and a half day conference at a conference center, you know, with multiple keynote speakers and that kind of thing. So we're looking at, you know, trying to find the best of both worlds, both because we can find the best of both worlds and because that's financially probably the most prudent thing to do also. So, um, we, I, I think it's okay to say that we have decided to keep Whova. Um, we're, so no matter what happens, we're gonna have Whova. So even if you were sitting in the same room, you could still have that, your phone out and you could be chatting with the people in the room about having that back channel conversation. And because Whova was a lot easier for our back office folks to do registration. That was, that was an unexpected benefit of Whova was registration and the, the, the logistics were actually much simpler. Who's so, mentioned there's silver linings like that. <laughs> yeah, that we didn't expect, but when we looked back on it, we were like, hey, that we wanna do that again now that we've figured out Whova. Yeah. We're going to keep it around for a little while. <laughs> yeah. Taking the time to sort this out. Let's keep going. So people should email me if they have ideas. Yeah. <laughs> conference and what kind of things would you want to do in person? And what kind of things does it make more sense to do virtually? Would you attend virtual sessions? Can we broadcast a keynote, uh, but maybe have a banquet? Like what, what would people, I, I'm curious to know what people would want. Last year was virtual and we made it up as we going. And I think this year is going to be something that we've never done before. And we're going to make it up as we go again. So that's actually a great place for us to kind of wrap up because I think, I think it'd be nice to let people know a way to get in touch with you to give you the answer to some of these questions about both, both like a listening tour questions and also listening tour specific to the conference and things they'd like to see next year in sort of a more hybrid conference model. So how can they find you? You, I, Email, I live and die via email. So that's really one of the best ways to get in touch with me. And it's jvarney at masschoollibraries.org, which is the same as our website URL. And that is the website that's also on, if you go to www.masschoollibraries.org, 
that email address is there and you can reach me that way. Um, but I also, I work in Cambridge and I'm on Twitter and Facebook. I'm part of the MSLA Facebook group. So you can find me there. Those are lots of different ways you can oh, find me. Whatever your preferred method is, there's a way to find Jeff. Here's, so here's the thing, before we started recording, Ellen and I were talking about generations and I'm Gen X and I have, for whatever reason, I love Facebook, I love Twitter. I have resisted Instagram. <laughs> I don't know why I have a mental block. I'm like, I can't do it. I can't do another social media. I'm not going to do Instagram. And all of a sudden, everything is on Instagram. Like yeah. my 25th college reunion is coming up, Gen X, woohoo, 25 years out of college. And like half of it's on Instagram. <laughs> I'm, all right, I guess I got to set up an Instagram. So when that I do is, that, I'll let you guys know what it is. <laughs> yes, please do. Um, Instagram is definitely my preferred social media. I have a Twitter account. I have a Facebook account. And I have a TikTok account. Know what students are talking about when they're like, mention something that's TikTok related. I'm like, I'm going to go look that up. <laughs> yeah, see, for elementary school, it's just all about like the famous YouTubers. Yes, that's the whole other. And luckily, they're so little that when they mention something, I smile and nod and they think I get it. And it's okay. <laughs> Yeah, lucky I try. I, I try. It's been such a great conversation as I knew it would be. And is there anything, any parting words you want to offer us? Anything else we didn't cover that you were hoping we would cover? No, I don't think so. Just I do want to reiterate that, you know, I really do want to hear from people. Please stay tuned. The listserv is really where all the, the information comes out. And I know people are averse to email right now, but it's really, really important. And if for some reason you're not getting the listserv messages, I discovered some people in Boston are not, please, please, please let me know because there's really important information that comes through there, as well as just an immediate connection with people who do your job. You know, being a school librarian can sometimes feel isolating because we are the only people in our buildings that do our job. And MSLA is your connection to other people who understand your job, who know what it is, who can answer questions for you, or at least, you know, bounce some ideas off you and, um, and who get it. So make sure you're connected in that way. Um, don't hesitate to reach out. I want to hear from people and um, stay tuned for more exciting MSLA news. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jen. We appreciate it. As Jen said, we hope that this podcast allows for some connection with people who do your job. So thank you again for listening. And if you have any ideas that you'd like to share on the podcast, please don't hesitate to email us. You can email us on podcast at maschoollibraries.org. And you should share your podcast on Anchor. And join us next time for an episode with Beverly High School librarian, Barb Fechtow. See you soon.